Thank you, uh, Pastor Doug. Thank you for the invitation to be here at First Covenant Church. It's always a joy to uh, to uh, be with you. Uh, the last time I actually spoke in this church was 10 years ago, as we were just getting ready to launch the uh, the new church plant down in El Dorado. And um, I want to thank you for uh, those of you that were part of our prayer team on that and, and supported that new ministry in, in some other ways. Um, just know that God's faithfulness. Um, has borne fruit down there. We've had a lot of uh, young families that uh, have been transformed and are being transformed through that young church. Many, many children as well. Um, at one point, 47% of our church was under 18 years old in that church. And um, so that was a little overwhelming, uh, but in a very, very wonderful way. Um, Church planting has been my, my official title as Director of Church Planting for the Midwest Conference, and um, it's an area that I'm passionate about and have, have become increasingly passionate about as I've watched God transform lives through young new churches. And um, one of the uh, statistics that we have in, in the Evangelical Covenant Church is this. Last year, um, in 2013, 8,000 children, adults, and youth came to know Christ for the first time through covenant churches that have been planted in the last 20 years. Um, that's a dramatic number, and uh, it shows you how God is using uh, the ministry of, of church planting to draw people to himself and into his kingdom. One of the reasons that church planting is so effective in terms of evangelism is um, has to do with culture. And uh, so I want to just kind of dwell on culture a little bit as we look at Acts 11 today. Um, but culture is something we all kind of deal with. Uh, Cheryl and I are not native Kansans. I grew up among Scandinavian dairy farmers in, in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And Cheryl grew up in a Canadian Mennonite family. And so we had never been to Kansas until we came to uh, the church in Clay Center uh, 28 years ago. And when we, when we arrived in Kansas, we were, you know, pretty comfortable for the, for the most part, but there were a few cultural nuances that we had to learn. Uh, for instance, in, in Kansas, people tend to say what they mean. And growing up in Minnesota and Wisconsin, I was not used to that. Uh, for instance, we, uh, we arrived here and, and uh, we invited some friends over for dinner uh, in Clay Center. And at the end of dinner, Cheryl asked, who wants some apple pie for dessert? And the uh, guest said, sure, apple pie sounds great. And I thought, you know, that would never, ever happen in Minnesota or Wisconsin. It wouldn't. If you ask somebody in Minnesota if they would like some dessert, some apple pie for dessert, they would say immediately, oh, no, thank you, but I really shouldn't. And um, now you've got to understand they're lying. They really do want the pie. But you've got to play this game culturally uh, and ask them again, are you sure you wouldn't want some apple pie? It's fresh out of the oven. And they would say, you know, it smells delicious, but no, I really shouldn't have any. Um, don't stop there because they really still do. They want you to go to the trouble. So you've got to do it another time and, and add some encouragement. Encouragement's important for Minnesota and Wisconsin Scandinavians. Say, you know, how about just a small piece? I'll cut it very small and... Um, and, and you're going to love it and say, well, okay, I'll, I'll, just a small piece. I could do that. And so that's the game you play. 
And it's a cultural game. And we're all products of our culture, right? Um, Culture affects little things like the dessert protocol in your region of the country. And it affects big things like how we live out our faith and how we understand the gospel and, and how the gospel gets communicated to us in our own lives. In Acts chapter 11 which uh, Pastor Doug read, we have recorded for us a really a defining moment in the life of the early church um, in, in the book of Acts. It's a moment when the gospel of Jesus breaks through the constraints of culture and begins to transform the first century world um, known at the time. So I want to look back again at verse uh, 19 of Acts chapter 11. Um, it says that those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word. Only among Jews, however. Um, when, the, when the early disciples were, were uh, driven out of Jerusalem because of that persecution that had come upon the believers, uh, they went to other places and they When they went to other places, they gathered people around them and talked about Jesus. They planted churches, but only among Jews, because they were a Jewish culture. But look at what happens in verse 20. It says, Some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, you've got to understand, this was a brand new thing going on here. Um, And it was a little bit unsettling for those uh, church leaders back in Jerusalem. A little bit unsettling that these Greeks, or these pagans... These Gentiles were responding to the good news of Jesus. And they they weren't quite sure what to do with this. So in verse 22, it says that when news reached the the church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas to Antioch, sort of on a reconnaissance mission to check out what was going on, make sure, you know, nothing too weird was going on. And so when Barnabas arrives in Antioch and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Antioch is becoming this very, very rich, fruit, uh, fruitful place where the gospel is taking root, not only in the lives of Jewish believers, but now among the Gentiles. Barnabas knew that he needed to, to ground these new believers, and so in verse 25 it says that he went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. They were establishing them in the faith. And and here's this little um, parenthetical note that I think is so interesting. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. First time in the Bible that we have this word Christians show up. So two churches are mentioned in this story. We have the Jerusalem church. And we have the Antioch church. Both of these churches loved Jesus. But if we look kind of internally at the cultural uh, parts of these churches and the towns in which they're located, we will see that their DNA 
is a little bit different from one another. And it's not hard to understand why. Let's look at Jerusalem. Where was the Jerusalem church located? Anybody venture a guess on that one? It was in Jerusalem, right? Um, And Jerusalem was a very unique place for uh, the Jews of the time. It had a tremendous history. Uh, Ever since King David had taken that Jebusite city uh, as the center of this new monarchy that he he was establishing as as he was anointed the king of Israel, uh, Jerusalem had become the power center of the Jewish people. It was David's son Solomon that built that magnificent temple on the hill on the east uh, edge of the old city. And that temple was the thing that for centuries gave the rhythms of life to those residents of Jerusalem. Now, if you were um, a Jew living in Jerusalem, you were probably a man or a woman whose personal identities were deeply connected with the story of God's call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You probably looked to the prophets and to the storyline of Israel as your story. The traditions meant a lot. That's true for us, too, isn't it? When I think about my own journey of faith, uh, my story means a lot. The people that God had brought into my life, my, my unique uh, experiences uh, within my church tradition mean a lot to me. And the Jews were very much that way. Uh, they knew that they were God's chosen people. They were the, the people chosen um, at the time of Abraham. And God told, told Abraham, you're going to become the, the father of a great nation and the world, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you, right? They understood that they were God's chosen. Um, the Gentiles, however, the Greeks, they weren't God's chosen. And the Jews knew that. Now, who had power in Jerusalem? The, the, the power structure of Jerusalem was also very interesting, and it, sort of at the center of it was this uh, Sanhedrin, which was a group of 70 Jewish men. There were no women, uh, and there were no Gentiles for sure among the Sanhedrin. And the, the mission of the Sanhedrin was to guard the tradition of the elders and protect Israel from all kinds of novel ideas and cultural threats that were, um, you know, very real around them. Uh, so it's fair to say, I think, that in the first century culture of Jerusalem, this city had sort of a defensive posture toward the world around them. And that, there was good reason for that. If you look at the history of uh, Jerusalem, it had been devastated again and again and again by these external nations, external threats. I mean, it was you know, Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia, and now it was the Romans that had occupied and, and kind of uh, put pressure on, on the Israelite nation. And on top of these external threats, these nations that were out there, there were internal threats that the Sanhedrin and the Jewish people were always a little wary of as well. Homegrown zealots who would have these messianic visions and... Um, you know, they, they, want, they didn't want that to happen either because the one thing they wanted was just peace. They didn't want agitators among them. Uh, and so the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem had learned to live with their guard up, understandably so. As we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus kind of bumped up against this 
defensive posture many times throughout the, the, the Gospels. Um, in fact, it was Jerusalem's defensive posture that led to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, was it not? You know, it was Pharisees who were seeking to, to defend the Torah, the law of Moses. And, you know, Jesus seemed to be not following the law as they understood it should be followed. Uh, or the priesthood, trying to protect the temple's status. Remember Jesus walking with his disciples along the temple walls and, and they have this conversation about this magnificent edifice and, and Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. And you go, whoa, you don't talk like that about the temple. And so the, even the priesthood was very, very wary of some of the things Jesus was saying. The Sanhedrin itself, I mean, they were trying to maintain their powers of position and, and influence and, and keep the right enemies, you know, the enemies at bay. And, and Jesus kind of pushed their buttons too at times. And they didn't know what to do with Jesus. This was the culture of first century Jerusalem. And it could not help but affect that young spirit-filled church that had been brought to life on the day of Pentecost. I mean, that, that was the culture that this young church uh, lived within. And it affected uh, some of the things uh, and the attitudes among those early believers, as we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So that's the Jerusalem church. Now let's look at the Antioch church, um, this other church that had been started. If we go to Acts chapter 13, the first verse, we get a little bit different picture of that congregation and the the cultural dna that it was dealing with let's just read that first verse it says now in the church at antioch there were prophets and teachers barnabas simeon called niger lucius of cyrene manian who had been brought up with herod the tetrarch and saul so those are some of the leaders in the antioch congregation and at first glance, you know, it's easy for me to kind of read names in the Bible and just kind of skim over them and not pay too much attention because I can't pronounce half of them anyway. But these names are sort of telling because these leaders are not insiders from Jerusalem. These leaders in the Antioch congregation had not grown up at All Saints Church downtown Jerusalem. Barnabas, he was from Cyprus. Simeon was a black African. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene came from North Africa. Manian, now, now this guy's interesting. He was an intimate friend, maybe a stepbrother of Herod. And then there's Saul, of course. And Paul, as we know him, was a, you know, a, a, a Jew of Jews. He had been trained in, in, in all of the, the, the Jewish culture, but he was also a Roman citizen from Tarsus in Cilicia. And so we come to chapter 2 of Acts 13, and it, it says that while this young congregation in Antioch was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, this church gathered around Barnabas and Saul, they laid hands on them, and then they sent them off on the first missionary journey to the Gentile world. This is where it all began, folks. So two different churches here, the congregation in Jerusalem and the congregation in Antioch. Both of these churches loved Jesus with all their hearts. But here's the interesting reality. 
the missional momentum that transformed the first century world with the gospel of Jesus Christ was launched from the Antioch congregation, not from the Jerusalem congregation. Remember, it took persecution to get the Jerusalem disciples to kind of leave the city and go out and plant new churches. But the culture of Antioch was a little bit different. Antioch was a very young, cosmopolitan uh, city. I mean, it it had a lot of brokenness in it. There was a lot of, uh, you know, not-so-Christian kind of things going on in Antioch. But the church that God had brought together there was very, very interesting. The Holy Spirit had drawn together all these diverse people to Christ. I mean, there were uh, Jews and Greeks, right? First time that there's really a congregation that's made up of all these different Jews and Greeks together. Black and white. There are rich and poor. There are Jewish zealots on one side of the congregation and Roman citizens on the other side. There are Democrats and Republicans sharing life together. The believers in Antioch were drawn together by something much bigger than their Jewish heritage or their temple rituals or their traditions or their personal stories. And I think that's why they needed to come up with a new name for who they were, Uh, a new name that was more inclusive. And I believe that's why it was at Antioch where the believers, the followers of Jesus, were first called Christians. It included them all, Jews and Greeks, the whole gamut. When Cheryl and I moved to El Dorado to uh, plant Hope Covenant Church 10 years ago, um, we didn't know anybody in, in El Dorado, which I look back on and I think that was the craziest move. Um, I, I really do, I really do uh, claim it was Holy Spirit-induced temporary insanity, you know, God will, God will do things um, with you sometimes that you wouldn't do yourself. But, so we moved to El Dorado, and we thought, okay, well, we've got to meet some people because we really don't know anybody here. If you're going to start a church, people are an important part of that. So we, we bought a house um, at the beginning of a nice biking path that uh, exists on the northeast part of town. And we thought, okay, we, we will meet people on the path for sure. And uh, that'll be a good connecting point. And so we, we got acquainted with people. And, and this one neighbor in particular would walk his dog at least twice a day. And uh, I'd said hi to him a few times. And finally, we stopped on the street and we were talking together. And he asked the question, so what brings you to town? And, uh, you know, if you're a pastor, I don't know if this is true of you, Doug, but whenever a stranger asks me what I do, I, I really don't want to say I'm a pastor because the conversation either shuts down or changes dramatically. But I told him I was a pastor, and, um, and, I, and he said, oh, really, what church are you pastoring? I said, well, we're, we're actually starting a new church in town. And his face kind of gets this weird look on it. And the next question is one I, I just anticipate all the time. Um, with a hint of contempt in his question, he asked, why do you think we need another church here in El Dorado? That's a good question. He said, aren't there already plenty of churches in this town? I couldn't argue with them. I mean, there's a lot of churches in El Dorado. Most of them are empty. But he was right. Why do we need another church? Why do we plant churches in a country that has all these churches around us? Well, the reason is, is that many churches in America today 
are Jerusalem churches. They're living in a Jerusalem culture. But increasingly, we live in an Antioch world. Increasingly, the people around us have no clue how to relate to a Jerusalem church. They don't know the traditions. They don't share the the history. They, They don't understand the language. And many people can't figure out, as they look at some of us Christians, why we seem so sour and judgmental in spite of the fact of having good news, right? <laughs> I did a little research on uh, Saline County, and uh, over the past 30 years, um, the population, which is represented by the Green Bars, has actually grown in Saline County, right? About 13% over 30 years, which is really good in Kansas because the majority of counties in Kansas are declining. Um, so you have a healthy healthy environment here in Saline County. But look what happened to the church affiliation in Saline County at the same period of time. It's actually dropped slightly. And, um, you know, there's a tell, that, that's telling us something about culture. Um, and and uh, we are living in an increasingly um, unchurched culture. Um, the next graph shows where people's religious affiliation is in your uh, county. The largest group are the unreached, by far. Uh, By the 2010 census, there's 28,093 men, women, um, and and youth who are unconnected to uh, the body of Christ. And, of course, we know that that number is probably far higher than that because that's that's simply affiliation in any any faith tradition. Um, The largest group... The fastest-growing religious group in America today are the the nuns, right? Not the Roman Catholic kind, but the uh, N-O-N-E-S on the on the surveys. No affiliation. That's the fastest-growing group in our country, um, and that reflects the trend that this next graph will show, which which is kind of the national picture of of where our church in America is going today. This uh, this graph represents uh, two decades. The the green bar is the uh, growth trend of the American church from 1990 to 2000. And if you look at it, every tradition was declining during that decade except the evangelical church, which actually grew about 14% in the 1990s. Um, but what's kind of troubling is to look at the next 10 years, the next decade represented by the orange bars. Um, and what we see is that across the board, those churches that were declining are declining much more rapidly than they were. And those churches that were growing, the evangelical tradition, that growth has been cut dramatically in uh, the 2000s. And so the trend is sort of discouraging. On any given weekend, only 17% of Americans attend any kind of a Christian worship service. And that doesn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us when we start talking to our neighbors and friends. Here's the good news. People today, in spite of the trends in our culture, people today are very, very hungry to know the God who created them. They're very, very hungry for a connection with the one who, who has called them to life and, and they believe have a purpose for their life. Last year, uh, the Covenant Church in Clay Center, Kansas, uh, parented a new congregation 
in Washington, Kansas, right? You, some of you have been to Washington, right? Uh, one of our larger metropolitan areas in Kansas, population 1,100. Uh, and what is so neat about this story is that even in small places that have several churches on the streets, God is doing some transforming work through this new young congregation. And I'll just share two brief stories. One is of a, of a young mother. Rust, uh, Pastor Rustin McClure is the church planter up there. Uh, started just about a year ago after Clay Center got the, the group together. And um, I was talking with Pastor Rustin and several of his lay leaders uh, a few weeks back. And he, he, they were so excited to share the power of God's Spirit. One, one of the neat stories was a young mother who had grown up in, in the community Um, had lived a life that she was not proud of, had never been part of a a church community before, and had found Christ at this new church plant. And she was so overwhelmed by God's love and grace for her life and the new start that she has because of Jesus that she wanted to be baptized. And the church brought in a stock tank. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're meeting in a, in an old bar. And so they don't have a baptistry or, you know, whatever. So they brought in a stock tank and they baptized this young mother. And that young mother said, I want my young child to be dedicated to the Lord on the same day. And that's just the power of God's transforming work through this new ministry that is reaching an Antioch culture. Now, you know, I'm a guy on my way to somewhere between 40 and 70 years old. I'll just leave it there. And um, so I understand that guys sometimes come to church because their wives bring them. I'm sure that's not true of anybody here, but uh, that is true in some places. Um, and that was true for a couple of men in this Washington new church. They, they had been sort of sitting on the sidelines, passive by spectators for decades when it came to their faith. And their wives brought them to this new covenant church plant. And all of a sudden, in a matter of months, God has gotten hold of their hearts. And they have been called to a mission that they had never, ever uh, said yes to before. These two men, who are uh, right around 60 years old, are leading Bible study groups for the first time in their life. And not only that, they are leading others in prayer, out loud. And these are two men who had never prayed out loud before in their lives. And it's happening now through this new church. God is using people who you would have never guessed he would use. Um, That's the power of God um, as he transforms lives through new churches. Now, I, I uh, I have to apologize for bringing... A photo of my seven grandchildren this morning, but if you're a grandparent, you'll understand why I do that. Uh, this was taken last Easter when my grandkids were literally ages six, five, four, three, two, one, and zero. That, that happens every every year for about two weeks. And um, but I show this photo because uh, my heart is increasingly moving toward this generation. Now I know that in this church there are many, many children. There are many young children and there are many youth. Some of you have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and we're wondering, you know, what is, what is their life going to be like in an increasingly unchurched culture? 
What's, what's their walk with God going to be like? Do you know that by the time these seven children are in college and marrying age, that 74,000 churches in America will close their doors forever? 3,700 churches every year shut down, never to reopen in this country. That's one of the reasons that I'm passionate about starting new churches starting new expressions of the gospel, new communities of faith, so that not only can we reach new groups of people that may never find their way into a Jerusalem environment, but that new generations can find a fresh expression of, of the gospel for their peers. And planting churches is one of the most effective evangelism tools that we have. Um, and I'll just close by making a couple of contrasts that I think are are really practical to think about as we walk with Jesus and as we serve as the church of Jesus Christ. Um, So in the Jerusalem culture, it was really the temple that was central. Um, And and if you look at the contrast between Jerusalem culture and the Antioch culture, the Jerusalem had a centralized understanding of, of what it meant to be the people of God. The temple reinforced that. Come to us. Um, you know, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of church friends, and, and, and I'm a pastor. And for, for most of my ministry, my philosophy has been with my unchurched neighbors, well, if they would just come to Sunday morning worship service, they could be like us. Right? Makes sense. I mean, we are so good. We're so, why wouldn't they love us? They, if they could just come to us and be like us. Now, I am a big, strong proponent of gathering for worship. But in the Antioch culture, there was a little different dynamic going on because they didn't have the temple there. They understood in Antioch that God didn't dwell in a building or in a place, but God rather dwelt in his people. God dwelt in the body of Christ. And so when uh, the Antioch church was called to lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and then send them on their way to the Gentiles to plant other churches, they knew that God was going with them. They were sending the temple off to do work in other places. And I just love that image. Um, wherever they went, God was present. We noted that in, in the Antioch church, there was a lot more diversity of, of, uh, within the congregation. I mean, uh, knowing Christ was what brought all these divergent groups together. It was far more important than their pedigree or ethnicity or politics or social status, anything else. They were drawn together by Jesus Christ. And all those other divisions took a secondary place. Um, In Antioch, there was no Sanhedrin in that city. I think that's sort of an interesting thought uh, because in Jerusalem, even though the, the spirit-led Christian church had sort of broken out and, and was living for Jesus, they were still under that watchful eye of the Sanhedrin in that city, and that creates some fear and barriers. Do you know that there are some churches today that still have an in-house Sanhedrin? A group of people making sure that the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything too outside the box? I'm so grateful for... Um, for churches like First Covenant that have been responsive to the Holy Spirit. 
as, as God raises up new opportunities, who are able to take risks and, and do new things. And you know, God honors that, and God has honored that so much here in your ministry. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing that God uses to bring the gospel to new people and generations. So the Jerusalem culture had a lot to protect when it came to their faith. It had the temple, it had the law, it had the traditions of the elders. It had the entrenched interests of priesthood and power structures and financial systems. But in Antioch, there was this profound sense of the gospel of the God who had come to them into their broken, dark world with the good news of life. And I believe that's what God has called us to be about as the Church of Jesus Christ in America today and tomorrow. Because we're in a watershed moment of change in our culture. And, uh, you know, 20 years from now, it's going to be very different than it is today. But God goes before us. As we gather around the table today, this is such a powerful symbol of, of the God who gave up the glory of heaven. He didn't hold tight to that glorious place that he had with the Father. But God came to us in the Son and emptied himself, became a servant, and entered into our lives so that he could give us life. And he's called us as his church, the servant, to do the same. Thank you for your partnership in starting new churches. In our Midwest Conference this year, God has laid out a wonderful challenge. We believe that he may be raising up at least five new churches in our conference this year. And it's, and it's your uh, partnership that enables us to be planting churches at this rate. I covet your prayers for these new churches. I ask that you um, pray for uh, the new church in Washington. I ask that you pray for... Pastor Jose and Ada Carrillo, who are going to be likely planting in Manhattan this summer, Spanish-speaking congregation. Uh, pray for our churches in Colorado, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas City area, and here at home as we respond to God's work. Um, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you for coming to us. Thank you for leaving the glory of your home in heaven and entering our world to give us life. And God, as we walk with you, continue to give us your heart for lost people around us and show us how we might bring the gospel to others. Here at First Covenant, throughout the churches that exist in our, our region, and also, God, through new churches that will provide new opportunities for those who may not ever come through the door of an established church. Lord, we love you and thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.